Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Hey, Stephanie, how you doing? Doing great. Dry January is over, so that's a relief. <laughs> How are things in Ottawa? Oh my, I'm very thankful that I live in the outskirts of town. I, I used to be resentful when people referred to Barhaven as Farhaven, but I'm embracing that right now. We do have our own far right wing folks driving around town, our part of town with upside down flags, which is annoying to no end, but we don't have the horn honking or the blockade that's inconveniencing and threatening people downtown. So. I, I'm not in bad shape, but it does raise a couple of questions I wanted to to, to raise, and and if you feel comfortable talking about it, go ahead. If you don't, I'll just I'll just rant instead. But there are a couple of civ mill dynamics that come out of the events of the past week. The first is after we had the individuals parking at the tomb of the unknown soldier, and then the individual dancing on the tomb. General Wayne Ayers came out and and had a statement on Twitter about this, and. From a civ mill perspective, this was interesting. From a human perspective, I understand why he did it. From a civ mill perspective, the question is, is, does it make sense or is it appropriate to have a, the most senior military officer speaking about this political event? And one of the things that civ mill people have been talking about lately is this whole notion that military people aren't political is a mistake because war is politics by the means. Militaries are always inherently political. They're major actors making public decisions that affect people. And so the distinction that people draw is between things that are political and things that are partisan. And so speaking out uh, on this could be seen as political, but not partisan if, if it's just about the desecration of the tomb of unknown soldiers and the war memorial where we give tribute to all the Canadians who've given up their lives in the wars over the past 100 20 years or so. So I think that, you know, we can we can say that it might be appropriate, but if you think of it as uh, of these people doing it, being part of a partisan activity that, you know, they're either members of the People's Party of Canada, they're members of the Conservative Party of Canada, they're trying to push the, the Conservative Party of Canada further to the right, they're trying to, I don't know, overthrow the government. That makes it more of a partisan issue. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any takes on this. I think that it's, it's useful to think about the criteria you've just set out and then go back and analyze that statement on that basis. So, you know, I, I didn't read that tweet, I must confess. So if you think back to what General Ayers said, was it narrowly construed as a reaction to the desecration of a war memorial or was it broader than that? And I'm calling up that tweet now to find <laughs> it to say what he said. So I am sickened to see protesters dance on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and desecrate the National War Memorial. Generations of Canadians have fought and died for our rights, including free speech, but not this. Those involved should hang their heads in shame. So it's a very, very specific 
message and he doesn't say anything about the larger protest. So one could see this as being about protecting something that is sort of within the bailiwick, within the sphere of the Canadian military, which is the place where we memorialize those who died in conflicts and actually has a former, you know, the unknown soldier buried there. So I, I don't think he overstepped his bounds. I think it was a pretty careful message, but it's still very, very striking to have, have him say that. I was not surprised to see Minister Anand send out something similar. Her role in this is more straightforward. Obviously, it was not surprising to see the Prime Minister speak out about this because, again, his role is more straightforward. So the, the second thing that happened is we had reporters, some reporters suggest that the military's role in, in getting involved in ejecting the truckers from downtown and unblocking the blockade of the, the border in Alberta. And I think it's pretty easy to dismiss because I think that we don't need to call in the military for that. I don't think it's appropriate to call in the military for this right at this point. There are plenty of police folks in the RCMP that can handle this. We don't need to have the military do this. This is not a threat to good order and governance in the, in the, in the big stream of things on this. Uh, so we'll move on to talk about the big crisis outside of Canada which is the Russia-Ukraine thing keeps going on. What's the latest and what, where do you stand on what Canada is doing these days? Well, the Minister of National Defense just left Ukraine. So that was a short visit, but one which was used to reinforce Canada's commitment to Ukraine. And then I think it's useful to think about you know, what that contribution entails, because there were some announcements made several days ago about increasing the uh, training capacity. Right now, it seems fairly modest. So there were 200 Canadian Armed Forces trainers in Ukraine, mm -hmm. and now we're adding 60 to that. But perhaps more significantly, there is this surge capacity of up to 400 total trainers that could be envisaged. There has also been a relocation of the trainers. So that was another significant mm -hmm. development since we last talked a couple of weeks ago. And the military also said to work with the Canadian security establishment to strengthen cybersecurity and cyber operations. So there have been some development. And I think that the, the broader debate about these latest announcements is, is whether or not Canada is doing enough, uh, which begs the question, what are other countries doing? Because we're focused a lot on, on Canada, the Ukrainian diaspora, and, and how that is mobilizing greater attention to the, the crisis in Ukraine and, and perhaps pushing Canada to do more. But you know, when you look around in terms of what other NATO allies might be doing, it's just interesting to compare both the, the political narratives and then how that translates into distinct military responses. So, you know, Germany, France, the UK all have very different takes on what the best approach is moving forward. And of course, the United States is, you know, the, the more forceful actor in uh, these various diplomatic interactions, uh, it seems to me. What do you make of these latest announcements about this increase of the number of trainers? Do you think it's significant or do you think it's basically playing up what the CAP is already doing and to showcase what it's already doing with a, a very modest increase in, in that capacity. I think you just said it. I think it's a modest increase that just shows that we're there and we're doing what we're doing. I don't know what enough looks like. You know, if people are saying we're not doing enough, I'm not sure what enough looks like. I know enough is not putting troops into harm's way and hoping, you know, expecting that they're going to be in the front lines of uh, fighting the Russians. We, we don't have the capability for that. I don't think Canada has the interest. Canadians don't have the desire to see lots of casualties coming home. I don't think we have a, we don't have a defense agreement with Ukraine, so we don't owe them, you know, our blood to defend them. So I don't, th I don't think you're going to see that. But, I, you know, when we hear, are we doing more? What do we need to do? We have to have some humility about our ability to pack things. I think 
60 doesn't sound like a lot, but if you do the math of it, so 60 is way a 30% increase of trainers. It's not going to have an immediate impact. I think, you know, extending the mission for another three years, which was obviously going to happen, it was in, in, in an honest mandate letter. I think that's a, a signal that, that our commitment is, is real and long-term. The, the proposal that will double the mission from 200 trainers to 400 trainers suggests that we, you know, it's a more extensive effort. You know, we're, we're doubling our effort if, if, if that comes to, to fruition in the long term. And I think that's meaningful. It's certainly the case that the Ukrainians value what we're doing. They want our troops in more and more places across the country in different training arenas. I resist mightily anybody saying we should do whatever the Ukrainians ask for because mm -hmm. Canada has to maximize and protect Canadian interests and values, not some of the other countries' interests and values. We have to do what's best for us. And what's best for us is not getting embroiled in a war with Russia. So it was true that what we're doing is not adding a lot, but I'm not sure that there's much we can add without uh, escalating things or endangering ourselves. So I think these measures are fairly token, but in the long run, they can have meaning, but they're not gonna change, they're not gonna move the needle tomorrow. And I think we need to be realistic that we can't move the needle. We just don't have the capability or willingness to do it. We don't have the desire, the national will, what do you want to call it, to put ourselves on the front lines, nor should we. And so I think that's where that stands. In terms of the allies, you know, the allies are always going to very differ about this. The, the French are going to see this as a way to make the EU more relevant than NATO. But the French need to realize that in 2014, the threat of Ukraine to Russia was not so much NATO, but it was the relationship of the EU to Ukraine that was threatening. And I think that still remains true to this day, that that's really what upsets Putin. The EU presents a threat of domestic political change in the former Soviet space of an alternative model for being a successful, vibrant economy, political system. It's not so much about military threats on the borders of the, of the Russian space. It's about the political threat. And that, that's much more so through the EU. So I don't know what Macron is doing. I do know that Germans are reluctant to get anything at all aggressive, uh, aggressive going on. One of my posts I have on my blog was from several years ago, which was referring to the NATO found, uh, Russia Founding Act. That, that in 1997, they agreed to a variety of things to found, develop the relationship of NATO and Russia in the aftermath of the Cold War. And the Germans want to keep that thing going, even though it's dead 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 is what i called it in my blog post because all the all the premises about her dead and it, it was killed in large part by the russian aggression against uh, ukraine and in, in 2014 and i just saw on twitter that justin massey your co-partner in crime on the research your national security analysis network that the news is that ukraine will develop a trilateral security relationship with poland and britain and his tweet was expected reaction canada why are we not again part of this new arrangement mm -hmm. like no <laughs> Please. So what else should we be doing, Steph? Well, I think right now Canada, I agree, is, is limited in, in what more it can do. I agree with you that Canada doesn't want to be in a war with Russia, but you know, who else wants to be in a war with Russia is really the question. It's really not up to Canada and, and Canada would certainly not stand alone there. Well, I'm not seeing any signals from the UK, Germany, France, or, or the US that this is part of the options. Canada is doing more than Germany, for, for example. Uh, Germany was criticized by Ukraine for offering 5,000 helmets as a contribution. So <laughs> at least when it comes to Canada-Ukraine relations, Ukraine is asking Canada to do more, is asking Canada to consider contributing lethal weapons. But so far, the nature of those interactions are quite different than what they seem to be with Germany. Then I think it's worth also talking about the Baltics in, in this equation, mm -hmm. because even Germany is not such a big player in terms of, of Ukraine. Right now, it's not contributing any trainers, for example, like a, like Canada is. It is a framework nation for enhanced forward presence. So it is leading 
or has a leadership role as a framework nation for the NATO battle group in Lithuania. And the Baltics are looking for reassurance right now. So the increase in contribution not, might not come through the bilateral relationship with Ukraine, but it might come through an increase or some, some kind of bolstering of the, the NATO presence in, in the Baltics. And certainly that would be more feasible. The United Kingdom has a different position too from Germany. It's also a framework nation for enhanced forward presence battle groups, but in Estonia. And the UK has already offered that it might do more to boost its presence in Estonia. Definitely threaten sanctions more forcefully. And even though the prime minister is sort of busy with his own scandals at home because of his uh, COVID lockdown parties held at his office, he also really clearly said that he unlikely that any British soldiers would be deployed to fight in a, in a conflict. So I'm not seeing any signals from, you know, Canada's traditional allies that they're looking for some kind of commitment from Canada that it would stay in Ukraine if the situation were to escalate. I don't think that we're, we're there yet anyway. And the UK, in contrast to Canada, is supplying anti-tank missiles. So in addition to its larger training effort in Ukraine, it has made a decision when it comes to supplying anti-tank missiles and in a way that Canada has you know, stuck to trainers and, and non-lethal military equipment. And then that, you know, you mentioned Macron earlier, he certainly tends to shine in times of crisis or thrive in these types of high-level diplomatic engagements. And I think that surely if someone can get through to Putin, it's a man who declared NATO to be brain dead. So France maybe has a special role in, in mm -hmm. keeping Putin engaged in dialogue and certainly also well-placed within Europe to be an influential player across platforms, whether that's the EU, Germany, the US, or NATO. So I can see Macron wanting to play up his role, not only because it's an election year in, in France, but also because he tends to seek out these high-level diplomatic exchanges to, to boost his visibility. So um, yeah, what this crisis reveals, I think, is just that there are differences in threat assessments within mm -hmm. Europe, between Europe and North America. And so far, there is you know enough political unity within NATO, but it's still translating into very different responses when you compare individual mm -hmm. NATO allies. And I guess that's what we just need to be careful about is that, yeah, NATO allies individually are doing these different things, but in a NATO context, you know, the only thing that they've committed to is to have more standby forces and in support of the protection of, of NATO territory and bolstering deterrence and defense of NATO, as opposed to anything that would be in direct support of, of Ukraine in, in this standoff. So yeah, it's a, it's still a bit nerve wracking right, to, mm -hmm. to look at the, the daily developments of this unfolding crisis. And certainly, you know, any moves that can escalate the situation, including the, the threat or imposition of economic measures or sanctions across Russia, can have lots of unintended consequences, you know, in Europe and North America, in the global economy. So, you know, it's it's not a great moment uh, for, for international politics. And, you know, it's, it's certainly a, a becoming a prolonged crisis, too, where it's going to be harder and harder for Putin to to back down. So I wonder, you know, what could be offered to Putin at this stage to save face now that, you know, basically all of his demands have been rejected. Well, one of the challenges that he has to face in terms of unintended consequences is that if he were to invade Ukraine, he would probably find himself strengthening NATO. That was the effect of 2014's efforts, that seizing Crimea has led to more countries spending more money on defense. It's led to more NATO efforts to support the East European countries. And so if he were to go further and, and actually launch a an invasion 
in Ukraine, it would be much harder for the, the German politicians, the French politicians to preach, hey, let's not do too much, let's not escalate, let's not do, you know, I'm not speaking, of course, in terms of actually intervening in the war, but in terms of a stronger, more united NATO, the more that Putin does in Ukraine, the more likely he's going to face a stronger NATO, that, that there are divisions over how to handle this crisis, but those divisions will be smoothed over if things get hot. We're running short of time today, so I thought I'd ask you, Stephanie, to talk a little bit about your interview today, which is really interesting. We always are edit the interviews that we have, and on this one, I was like, oh, this is too good to really make many edits in, or any edits in. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what, uh, who you talked to and, and what you got out of it? Yeah, thank you. So I spoke with uh, Sam Samplonius, and she is the co-chairperson of It's Not Just 700. And this organization has been one of the leading advocacy groups for survivors and victims of uh, sexual misconduct. So they've had a very prominent voice in debates about culture change in the Canadian military and efforts to respond to, to sexual misconduct in the military, including the development of peer support networks and groups. I do want our listeners to be aware that this interview does discuss sexual violence, so just be, be mindful of that. But it was a really uh, interesting conversation and a very heartfelt one. So it was a pleasure to, to sit down with Sam and uh, get to learn about her experience with uh, It's Not Just 700. Well, thanks for that. Thanks for your time today. I know that you've got a lot of meetings today. Good luck and, and have a great day. Thanks, Steve. Talk to you soon. Sam Samplonius is the co-chairperson of It's Not Just 700. She has over 40 years of experience in the Canadian Armed Forces with the Reserve and is a military sexual trauma survivor. As a reservist, Sam maintained a federal public service career concurrently while serving in the CAF. While her career was in material management, she also volunteered for many workplace initiatives relating to employee wellness and diversity, gaining extensive experience in joint occupational health and safety program development as a master trainer and union shop steward. For 10 years, she co-facilitated for the Treasury Board JLP anti-harassment course for managers. Now retired from the public service and facing a medical release from the CAF, Sam will be increasing her work in the area of CAF veteran advocacy that she began in 2007. In addition to volunteering as the co-chairperson with INJ700, she also volunteers as a senior advisor with the Canadian Military Sexual Trauma Community of Practice and an advisor for the Center of Excellence on PTSD. Sam, thank you so very much for carving out some time in your day to come on Battle Rhythm. I'm used to seeing you at the armories of the Princess of Wales' own regiment, so this is a nice change of pace for the two of us. Welcome. Yes, that's one of the beauties, I think, of being in the reserve force world is um, we have our military side of life and we have our civilian careers, so it's like a, a dual, dual thing happening. <laughs> exactly. And Sam, we've talked a lot about the Canadian Armed Forces journey of culture change on this podcast. And Steve and I really wanted to spotlight the important advocacy work done by It's Not Just 700. Perhaps you can share a little background with our listeners about the organization and who's behind it. 
Absolutely. So essentially in uh, March of 2021, um, it's not just 700 stood up. It was a a grassroots volunteer organization and it's comprised of the membership of people within our our community peer support group on Facebook that was first started with It's Just 700 way back in 2015. And myself and Dr. Lori Bouchard were moderators and peer supporters, informal peer support on that particular group. And when it was coming to an end and being disbanded, um, myself and Dr. Bouchard figured that it was still a definite need. Um, We didn't want to just, at the time, I think we had about 300 members and we just didn't want to leave them hanging and have no place to go because the space there had been kept safe and secure and a place that anybody that had experienced military sexual trauma had a place to go, to find resources, to find just other people that they could get a connection with that had gone through the same things and, you know, could really understand what they were dealing with in their life. So we took that over in March of 2021. And over that time, we've tried to really beef up the safety and security of the the group. And at the same time, through the class action suit that was initiated in 2017 and awarded in 2019, and we wanted to assist people with completing those claims uh, because a a large number of people from our group had participated in that going forward to the settlement part. Uh, We traveled to Ottawa where a lot of people testified at the hearings. Um, So it was something that while it wasn't initiated by our group, it was certainly participated a lot by our group. So just all of that support stuff, wanting to make sure people had a place to go, because that was really the main reason we were created is military sexual trauma was just, it was either whispered or people didn't even recognize what that was. So I would say that probably 2015 was when things started to begin to become more professional and aware of just the fact that it was a legitimate trauma and it was happening, unfortunately. And you're currently the co-chairperson of It's Not Just 700. May I ask why you decided to take on this advocacy work? Well, for myself, through my military service since 1981, the Canadian Armed Forces has always been an important part of my life. I've served primarily as a reservist due to marital and career responsibilities, but it's always been something very important to me. My father's village in Holland had actually been liberated by the very first regiment I was affiliated to, the Royal Westminster Regiment. So when I found that out at the young age of 16, I was determined to pay that back as, of course, without my father being able to emigrate to Canada after the war, I would not have been born and my children wouldn't have been born and just all those kind of I guess, hokey things maybe. But it was always very important for me to serve in the Canadian Armed Forces and to make it the place to go for the best experiences in your life, you know, the opportunity to travel, the opportunity to meet new people, to learn new things. I was a very adventurous kind of person. So joining the army back in 81 was a dream for me. It it opened up so many opportunities possible for me. So it's something that I've always wanted to see succeed. And you've had a a long career, 40 years. And of course, a military career is very different from the world of advocacy, which has its own ups and downs. It's hard work, but it's so important. And over the last year, it's been quite disheartening to watch the headlines about abuses of power and sexual misconduct at the highest levels of military leadership. At the same time, it seems to me that the sustained attention on CAF culture has created a huge window of opportunity to bring down some of the barriers that stalled change in the past. I wanted to ask you, Sam, looking back at your experience, especially this past year, do you have some lessons to share as we start 2022? 
Well, I, I would say, first of all, what, and again, back to the why I do advocacy. Throughout my career, I've always been very involved in any kind of the employee wellness stuff, ethics, diversity, leadership. These were all very important things to me that weren't just subjects. They were things that I felt were very important to create a space in the world where people could feel safe. Right? Another reason I joined the military, I wanted to be a peacekeeper. So within my own career, when I saw things happening that just weren't on, or I saw people being treated unfairly, that was always something I kind of took up the cause with. Um, within my civilian career, I was a, a union shop steward and an executive on the local, because that was an opportunity for me to help further assist these people in making sure they were treated fairly. So being treated fairly, having a system that treats everybody equitably, and just being good human beings has always been very important to me. So when the requirement to set up some a more formal sort of leadership of INJ 700 came up, and Dr. Bouchard asked me to be her, I started out, I was just the Instagram girl. <laughs> doing the inspirational stuff. And when she knew I had a social media communications type sort of expertise, she wanted me to be her communications director. So I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> and then as it's, as we know, it's very hard to get volunteers to do things. Everybody's busy. So the opportunity came up where it was, was a good fit for us to actually have two co-chairpersons. So that way Lori can take care of the, our external stakeholders, sort of like the building bridges and relationships, which is her professional background. She was a professor at Mount Royal College and did you know organizational business and those kind of things. For myself, it was a good fit because again, my advocacy work throughout my time within the federal public service and the military is you know a conflict resolution assistant kind of person. All that stuff really gelled together and just my facilitation experience, her professor teaching experience. It just made sense for us as two people that frankly, we get impatient with everybody talking about what needs to be done. <laughs> we're doers. We're like, okay, we see this vision and we have this vision that this is how things could be. And we're seeing everybody talking about this over here and talking about that over there and talking about this over here. And because we're talking to those three places, but those three places weren't talking to each other. We're like, wait a second. Did you know if this person did this and also just really honing in on, you know, you say you want to change the culture, but you're not thinking about how that affects the people that you're trying to change the culture for. So mm -hmm. Focusing on what that is, and, and for us, it's military sexual trauma survivors, that they're not all veterans, which was, you know, another thing I think that's surprising to people. There are still some people that despite that trauma they've suffered, you know, like myself, have coped in ways that maybe weren't necessarily healthy, but they've coped and they've stayed in the military. And it's those people as well that we're advocating for to have policies and procedures put into place that better protect people coming forward that better protect people that are serving. And really the biggest thing for us is just education and awareness because not everybody in the Canadian Armed Forces is even thinking about sexual misconduct. But what for a lot of people is they don't understand what sexual misconduct entails. So one of our complaints has been labeling everybody that's been charged with sexual misconduct, like no other details, because we understand that's it's a legal issue, it's a privacy issue. But at the same time, we think it gives people the perception that this misconduct is always the highest harm, like the worst harm, which basically we'll, we'll call it, it, it's rape. And so you have people that, you know, that there's allegations of misconduct because they, they did something not thinking, they said something not thinking, something happened under their leadership that they should have been able to prevent 
I mean, all of those things are being lumped into misconduct. And unfortunately, we, we see that it's, it's, it's hurting everybody. It's hurting the public perception of the CAF. It's hurting the morale of the people that are serving. It's triggering veterans that had it happened to them that thought things were changing and getting better. But now there's all these news stories saying that, well, no, it's not better. So it's, it's really dampening the hopes, I think, of a lot of people. So that's what me and lawyer are trying to do. I, I made the joke one day, I said, we're ambassadors of hope, hmm. we, where we are trying to tell people that, you know, yes, it's bad. But yes, there's also people trying to change things. And a lot of those people are still within the Canadian Armed Forces. And there's some people that are outside the Canadian Armed Forces. And I had no idea how many different organizations were all working towards resource pamphlets, or resource symposiums, things to really bring up the awareness of all of those they call like the isms are bad the sexism the racism the, the people that are bullying like you know we, we need to remember back when I joined people were the most important thing I was felt as a private that my job even though I was a private was going to be just as important as the guy that was the general like I joined as a supply technician and you know we get razzed over the years you know oh, you guys have just been rats or, or you're not a soldier because you just do supply and of course we always come back with well if you didn't have any bullets or rations, you wouldn't be able to go shoot your bullets. So, you know, really trying to get back to that whole team approach where everybody's job has an important place within the organization and every person in the organization has an important and very valuable place. And I think some, sometimes we lose sight of that. We, we get focused on the mission and this is what needs to be done without thinking about the impact it's going to have on your people that need to redo that mission or complete that mission. And there's just some people that, Unfortunately, that I've had the misfortune to come across that feel women don't belong in the military. And one of the ways they express that, unfortunately, was to, you know, exert their power by demeaning you, degrading you, disrespecting you, some of them in a, in a means of trying to get you to quit, or others just because they bona fide felt that, and we're talking back in the 80s for myself, they just felt that women were coming to the military because they wanted to meet men. <laughs> and, you know, came across that a lot. It just try to change that culture of, you know, women want to join the military because they want a career. And if they're qualified to do certain jobs and can meet the requirements of the job, then that should be the deciding factor. And this also applies to any gender because there's every gender comes in different body types and some body types are well suited to carrying, you know, 200 pounds a kit. And other body types are very suitable for work in an office because it takes self-discipline to sit in a chair all day. <laughs> Just really recognizing that everybody brings a different skill set to the table. And mm -hmm. instead of complaining about the skills they don't have, celebrating the skills that they do have. And when we go out and we're having our conversations with senior leadership, our focus is when they're thinking about doing something or a policy that's going to affect how we can prevent military sexual misconduct and or deal with military sexual misconduct that they need to think about how does that affect the survivor in that scenario. And we're really happy that they're listening to us. I mean, anytime we've asked to go talk in a minister's office, they've been very gracious. And usually we leave at the end of the meeting with them saying, wow, you know, I've learned a lot. I have a better awareness and thank you for not yelling at me kind of thing. Because I think that's the expectation they have there is that when somebody's coming to advocate that it's going to be all about you're doing this wrong and you're doing this wrong and you're doing this wrong. Our approach has been, first of all, do no harm to survivors. But second of all, always try to look at the positive side of things, pick out the positives, promote the positives, and let's just carry on and 
build a stronger, better CAF. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that when you're knocking on doors, those doors open because it's probably a big change that we've seen. If we even look back in the last five, six years, from my perspective as a researcher, I can see there's a lot more willingness to listen and to interact with external stakeholders. And what I'm hearing from you here is that you've also have an easier time now to get your voice heard, you know, personally, also through the advocacy work you do with INJ 700. Indeed. And we do owe a debt of gratitude to those people that, that did stick it out and go sit in the committee meetings and really kept that pressure on because we fully recognize that without those people that do that and continue to do that, it does make Lori and I's volunteer work easier because they've, they're already familiar with the issues and, and the impacts. And that's one of the things that we really try to dwell on even within our informal peer support group is to, when you're having an issue, let's focus on how it's affecting you as opposed to what happened to you. And because that's the thing that you're dealing with now, you can't deal with what happened to you unless you're still taking the person to court. But what you can deal with and what you do have control over is how it impacted you and try to change those negative impacts into something positive. And that's another reason Lori and I do the work that we're doing because we find that for both of us being in the military for a significant period of time, we have that lived experience, but we also have that ability now through our therapy and, and our place in our journey to be able to look at more, how can I change this impact that was on me into something positive? And we do that by going out there and trying to help as many people as possible. And not having that fear that no one's going to listen anymore has been a huge bonus in what we're doing. Because, you know, for, for years, I know that, you know, you just didn't say stuff happened to you. It's uh, very inspiring, Sam, that you have channeled that energy into helping others that you want to see an organization that has caused you some harm improve for the better. So I just wanted to express that, that admiration I have for the work that you do. Thank you very much on behalf of myself and Lori Bouchard. And speaking of impact, I want to circle back to, to that word that you used on December 13th, the defense minister, the CDS, the deputy minister of national defense all came together to offer a public apology for sexual misconduct in the CAP and at DND. So I have to ask, what did this mean to you and, and your fellow advocates? There is the wide range of reaction. And again, we go back to at what point people are at in, we call it a healing journey, even though it really never ends. Um, you know, you, you have people like myself and Lori. I mean, we're at a place where we could hear it. We felt it was sincere for us. We were lucky we'd been able to talk with the minister prior to that and, and really get a feel for whether or not she was just doing her job or really felt this was an important thing to do, even on a personal level. And I was happy to hear, you know, that it was, especially since she was a new minister and, and that. So that was important to me to know that it wasn't just another PR opportunity. And also it was important to us so that when people in our group would ask us, do you think they're sincere, then we could actually give a legitimate answer from a personal perspective without just guessing. You have people that They've been out for a long time. So the last memory they have of the military or the CAF is, is not a good one. And so they were more skeptical. You have people that are still serving that know things are happening and want to see it change. Some of them were skeptical as well because they wanted to, again, wait to see what was going to come of it. And then you had people that that's what they needed to hear. They needed to just hear that. Like, I think they, within the apology, 
one of the things that was we were happy to see is myself and Lori was just hearing the apologies to specifically to each segment. It wasn't like a blanket apology to say anybody this ever served. You know, they mentioned people by name, the NPF employees, the full-time, the reservists. And what they also mentioned is talking about the people that had felt silenced for so many years. Mm. That was huge for a lot of people that have been advocating for years and haven't gotten too far. So for them, I've heard back that 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 was profound for them to hear that validated that, you know, they were sorry that even though they've been trying for years to get people to listen, like now people were listening. And then you had people that were just, they just, it didn't mean anything to them. And it could have been for many reasons. It could have been that their assault didn't result in as much harm as say somebody else's assault. And we have to remember that your response to traumatic incident is really colored by your whole life experience and your upbringing and and a lot of different things and even the incident itself. So you have some people that we call it a higher harm versus, you know, lower harm, not from the perspective of the severity or the importance, but more the effect that it's had on the person, like a higher harm person could be in a state where they just can't function at all. Like they're just constantly thinking of all the bad things that's happened and why and and they just can't get out of that space. And then you have the, you know, the lower harm where there are people that they've either dealt with it in their way or they've had therapy that's gotten them through it. Or to them, it wasn't, it just wasn't as traumatic as say the same thing happening to somebody else who had different things happen. So we really needed to look at those differences when it came to the apology. And we wanted to acknowledge that. So we said to people, you know, no matter how you feel, that is your feeling, which makes it valid. And the only things that we were obviously discouraging was anybody doing anything adverse against it, but really just saying to people like they needed to, and then also not to bully up on somebody that was saying, well, that meant a lot to me or the opposite saying, having somebody say, well, that meant nothing to me. So Mm -hmm. really just trying to keep people in that respectful mode of, you know, everybody is entitled to their opinions and it, and it naturally does affect you all differently. I know we have some listeners who are in the junior ranks and they are launching their military careers at a time where the organization is weathering a significant internal crisis. And of course, there's more instability in world politics as well. What advice or message would you share with this next generation of CAF members and leaders? I have no regrets about joining the military. I have regrets about some of the people that I met in the military, obviously the ones that harmed me, but overall, from the perspective of the things I got to do, the places I got to go, the people I did get to meet that were, that became some of my greatest friends, I wouldn't have traded that for anything. It did become my family and I had that sense of belonging. And I think that that is a very important facet that people have to remember. Like I always felt protected when we went out as a group. We always had a rule, you know, leave no one behind. And that doesn't just apply to battle. I mean, that applies to when you're going out socially, when you're going out with a group of people. So when I when I first joined, I always felt like I had joined a family and there would be people watching out for me. In fact, I know that when we went out sometimes uh, on the town, I always knew that that the males in our group would, you know, if I was in a situation where a civilian male was being inappropriate, I could just give a signal. We had signals. And that person would basically be discouraged from, you know, bothering me. And I always felt that when I was in. And it was just that there was, like I said, certain people that I just, that caught me off guard. (laughs) So the thing I would tell them would be, you know, keep that sense of family, keep that sense of all these people serving with you are your brothers and sisters. And you're all there for the same mission. You're there to serve Canada 
because you because you love Canada, you want to learn a trade, you want to travel. There's a commonality between everybody. You just sometimes have to find it. For us, the first thing, of course, is that we've all put on the uniform. We've all signed to say we're going to serve Canada. So keeping that sense of family, keeping that sense of, you know, always watching out for each other, speaking up when you see things that, that, that just aren't appropriate. And even if it means speaking up to that individual that you saw it happen to and supporting them if they want to go forward, all those things. And just being aware that sometimes, you know, we, we make the wrong decisions and sometimes the best way to deal with it could be as simple as just saying a sincere sorry. And as we have people coming forward, sometimes, you know, when they know the work that we're doing, and if they've noticed from before, I've had people say, you know, well, I hope I never did anything, you know, to, to offend you. and I always tell people the same thing that I always look upon it as it was an individual that did something to harm me. And also like everything, there was different rules. There was different norms back then. We can look at them now and say they weren't right. But at the time, how could you expect somebody to make a different decision if that's what was going on? Doesn't make it right. What makes it right is that we recognize it now and we do something about it now and we don't let it continue to keep happening. And that to me is, is the real healing. It's not for me personally and in my personal opinion only going back and trying to bring up stuff that happened before and deal with it unless it's something that's still occurring with that particular individual. I don't know. I think, I think there's just got to be different ways to keep, keep an eye on each other because that would take care of lots of problems. <laughs> well, you, you've talked uh, at the front end about what service meant to you. And you've just talked about what has inspired you to keep going and the people around you in that sense of family. You know, as we uh, wrap up the interview, I wanted to see if there's anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners or you know, misconceptions you'd like to address about this whole journey of culture change or just about your entire experience being an advocate for survivors of military sexual trauma? Our biggest thing, and we've said this since the very beginning, is, is it's not a gender issue. It, it's not women against men. It's not men against women. There are, as has been seen now through the class action and the, the amount of claimants and the percentages of male and female that have been put out there, it, it comes down to a lack of respect for another human being. And I tell people that because if, if you respect another person, how, you know, really can you hurt them? Like respect is obviously a large spectrum, but it can even go as far as loving somebody, you know, so how can you hurt somebody that you respect? So just promoting that respect, calling out people, you know, not in a, in a mean way, but, you know, even if you have to be like, Hey, that, that wasn't really cool or something, just, really making people more aware. And that's what, what we want to keep doing, making them more aware that the respect is everything. When they talk about culture change, they're now trying to, you know, it, obviously I, I'd like to think that the spark in that was the military sexual trauma culture that we talked about, but now they're almost starting to pull in all the other things, which makes a bit of sense because, you know, all of that is just a lack of respect, like the racism, the sexism, the bullyism, all that stuff is, it's a lack of respect for another human being and what they can do, and really focusing on what they can do and not what they can't do. So those would be the two, two things I'd say is we need to really beef up that respect that's going on. Oh, it's important. So it's, it's good to welcome Isis, your sweet service dog, by your side. Yes, yes. She's, she's definitely been, been a lifesaver. She, uh, 
you know, keeps me in a, in a routine. And, you know, as a lot of people with PTSD will tell you that just having that, you know, need to have to take care of something else and that's insistent enough to make you do that too. I also have four cats and they just want to lay around with me, which isn't really productive. So <laughs> at, least with, at least with Isis, she wants to go out and romp around in the yard and, and, you know, it's as much as I hate snow, it looks pretty beautiful today. It's all fluffy and sparkly. So <laughs> mm, well, I don't want to, to keep you from her. And Sam, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. As always, I'm grateful for all that you do. I admire your strength and perseverance. Just thank you once again for sharing your thoughts with us on Battle Rhythm. And thank you and everybody and all your listeners for all those people that, again, are supporting culture change and, and want to see the CF be a better place. You know, it's just awesome. Let's do this. In today's IR segment, I have two TV shows and one book to recommend. The book is Twilight of the Gods. I, it's a third of Ian Toll's Pacific War trilogy. I've already recommended the first two, so I've got to finish that off by recommending the third. Uh, this one contains a lot of material I really didn't know much about uh, in terms of Endgame in the Pacific. It's really fascinating. It's really gripping history uh, and really well-written and very thorough. It builds nicely on all the history that's been done over the past 70 years. It's just a really striking uh, study of, of, of the, the part of the war that we don't really spend as much time thinking about and talking about. So I, I recommend Twilight of the Gods, the third book in the Pacific War trilogy. The second is Witcher. Uh, Witcher is something that Stephanie would not want to watch because she's not into fantasy, but it stars Henry Cavill of Superman fame and I think an entirely British cast of folks pretty much. And then a fictitious land with magic and, and mages and, and sword, swords and fighting and monsters and all the rest of it. The Witcher is an outcast from society, but is hired to fight monsters. So people consider him a monster, but a necessary one at times to fight other monsters. He's actually got a full, you know, nice mushy heart. And he's got a destiny and his destiny involves a princess that he must uh, protect. But first he's got to find her. And first he's got to start looking for her. Uh, and so the first season, is about three characters who are living entirely separate timelines and realities, and they start to merge towards the end of the second, the first season, and, and I'm now into the second season. It's, it's uh, pretty entertaining and a nice diversion. And that's on Netflix. On Amazon is Wolf Like Me, uh, starring Isla Fisher and Josh Gad. I've always been an Isla Fisher fan. And Josh Gad, you know, Olaf from uh, Frozen. Is, is, is always delightful. And this show is, is, is an interesting mix of things. There are two Americans who are displaced in Australia and they meet each other. And Isla Fisher's character has a secret. And yeah, I'm gonna uh, spoil a little bit. It involves wolves. Yet he, she and, and Josh fall in love. And so it's only a six episode first season, but we got pretty engrossed pretty quickly, despite the fact that it, it's, it's a little darker. You know, you got two really wonderful comedic uh, actors involved, and there is some comedy to be had, and there and it is fun, but there's also some uh, heft to it too because they both lost their partners, and they find each other. And he's got a daughter who's dealing with a lot of difficulties. And anyway, it's a sweet show full of heart and fair amount of drama. So, uh, Wolf Like Me, Witcher, Twilight of the Gods, good diversions from the stuff that's going on out there in the streets. Be well. <laughs>